Today's scripture is found in uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 45. This is the reading of God's word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who were followed were afraid. And, talking, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was, a, what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Stan. Stan is one of the elders here at our church, and when he is not rocking the bass in the Hawaiian Prince every Sunday, he also can double as a fill-in scripture reader. So I appreciate that, Stan. Well, we are in the Gospel of Mark as we have been going through this series together now, and as we're drawing near to the end of it, things are picking up. Jesus is on a roll. The intensity is building. The anticipation is growing. And many say that the verse of which we heard at the very end of the reading this morning, verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, is the key verse in the Gospel of Mark. And it's the verse that explains everything about Jesus' mission, who he is, what he came to do. And what we have here is also connected with this key verse is Jesus then also saying, here's what it's going to mean for your life. If this is how I live my life, here's what it means for those of you who are going to follow me. And I love Jesus. He obviously has a way of getting to the heart of the matters, but he's just doing it quicker and quicker and quicker now in these stories as we begin to, to build. Right? Last week, we looked at the rich young ruler. And Jesus right away is in his face, is pressing him, is drawing out of him. What's his deepest desire? What does he really want? Exposing him, helping him, changing him. And they see the same thing again with the disciples, right to the heart of the matter. There's an intensity about Jesus. 
right? And so, as he calls his followers, which, like us today, to live in a radically new way because of the radical way he lived, of course we ask, well, what does that mean? So to unpack that and to untangle that, I want to get at the heart of this question this morning, is why would anyone want to live like the Son of Man did? Why would anyone want to embrace the way the Son of Man lives, do the things the Son of Man did? And after all, what does that even mean that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man? Because he says, I want you to be a slave to all. I want you to be a servant of others. So what does that mean for us? How do we do it? But why would we even want to live that way? Why do we want to embrace this? And so we're going to look at this in kind of three steps here, three stages, right? First, to understand what Jesus is actually saying to James and John about how he's calling them to be servants, right? We have to understand what is Jesus responding to so that we can even begin to understand fully what Jesus says. So what's Jesus responding to? What did James and John really want when they come to Jesus and they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And then as we'll look at that, we'll see in James and John's request, why, why was that so bad? I mean, on the face of it, it looks pretty moronic, you know, like it's classic, the kid who comes to their parents, I want you to do whatever I ask. Like, hey, can... Can you just say yes to this one thing that I want? Like, you know, when, when that's prefaced beforehand, something, something dangerous is coming after it, right? So why is it so bad? And then we'll land then after we understand that. So why would anyone want to follow the way of the Son of Man? Why would we want to live this way? So let's get into that first question then to understand what Jesus is really saying. We have to look at what he's responding to. So what do James and John really want? What do they ask for? All right, so here's the setting. The setting is that they're going up to Jerusalem. Notice it says they're going up. Now, that makes sense because to get to Jerusalem, you literally have to walk up, right? It is elevated. But not only that, at this point, that term going up to Jerusalem also begins to foreshadow the suffering that awaits him, that he's going up to this. He's stepping up into the suffering. And so it's much more than just an ascent to the city. He's on his way to his suffering. But notice he's not being dragged like a prisoner of war. Instead, he is leading the charge. He is out in front. And so to know Jesus is to follow Jesus as he is leading the way. And then look at the emotion that it talks about in the passage. It says that they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And that pretty much probably sums up what we should feel following Jesus, right? A little bit of amazement, a little bit of fear and trepidation that this, this is who Jesus is and this is the mission that he is on. And so why are they afraid? Well, that's obvious. They have already have been threats. They already know that the Pharisees left Jerusalem and came to inspect Jesus to hear about this thing happening, you know, out in the sticks. They leave the big city and they're like, yeah, no, we need to squash this. You need to shut this down. This is, this is out of order. And so they know like we're going into the lion's den at this point. Like the very people who want to end our ministry, Jesus's most ardent opposition is in the city we're walking into right now at like the most popular holiday time, the Passover. 
this is intense. And so, of course, they're wondering, is Jesus going to make it out alive? But not only that, they're amazed. Because not just the miracles, but his determination, his boldness, his gravitas. And in the midst of this journey, Jesus turns and he gives them the third prediction of his death. Now, with each prediction as we've gone by, chapter 8, chapter 9, and now here again in chapter 10, each prediction we get a few more details. And now we're told some of the new things, that it's going to happen in Jerusalem, that he'll be betrayed, that they will be by both Jews and Gentiles. So everyone's going to turn on him, even those in his own company, right? And then notice the humiliation that he now starts to add. Because it wasn't just, I'm going to go and die. That's what he was saying before. But now he's saying, I'm going to go and suffer a humiliation. That they're going to, as the text says, they will mock him, they will spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. That's heavy stuff. But like we've seen in chapter 8 and chapter 9, when Jesus predicts his death, the disciples' first response is to start to maneuver for positions of power, to start to kind of jockey for position, which is easy to look at and go, these idiots, but maybe think for a second that we might be more like them than we'd care to admit and that maybe we also can live so close to Jesus and in this Christian bubble that we can create for ourselves that we're actually misunderstanding what he has for us. And so as we lean in, and we're going to see some boneheaded things here from James and John. That is for sure. But maybe there's a little bit of boneheaded in us as well. So what happens? Well, they start to come to him, and they, they kind of peel him off to the side. You know, kind of like, hey, uh, like while they're talking, like, you know, it's almost like one of them bends down to like fix his sandal and then like kind of suspicious. Because you notice they, they, they leave the other 10 out. And even most notably, they leave Peter out because there was the inner three, Peter, James, John. And James and John are like, well, I mean, there's only two seats. I guess Peter could be the guy giving back rubs, like, because we're going to be sitting next to him. All right. So the disciples, what do they ask for? Right. And this is just wild, you know, so they start with, do for us whatever we ask, you know, okay, yeah, I'm going to go die, and sure, what can I do for you guys, all right, well, uh, the thing we want is we want to sit in your right and your left in your glory, it's like, okay, and then Jesus goes, uh, you don't know what you're asking, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, now, the only thing worse than answering a rhetorical question is answering it incorrectly, okay? Because what's their first response? Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Yep, we are on board, Jesus. Yes, we're able, right? And so then Jesus says to them, well, the cup that I will drink is the cup that you, is the cup that you will drink, right? So let's pull this apart. What are they asking for? Because their, their request and the way that they even respond to what Jesus says, right, in, in his rhetorical question that I guess wasn't rhetorical to them, um, re really reveals their hearts. And a lot of this, I think, hangs on that word throne, that we want to sit on your right and your left, right? They're not asking for just a seat at the table. They want a seat in the throne room, in the power room where everything's happening. So in one sense, yes, 
They want to be seen as great. They want to have the admiration. They want to have the applause of everyone, right, who's going to see Jesus' victory because for some reason they're still thinking in terms of Jesus is coming to conquer and he's going to win rather than he's going to lose and die. And they're like, we want a piece of that. But what they really want is they want to be on the throne. And so it's deeper than just praise and admiration, but they actually want to be in power and they want to have some control. See, I think John Stott makes this very clear when he talks about the key here is the idea of thrones is that they don't want to sit on cushions. They want to sit on seats of power. That they want to be able to always know what Jesus is planning. And more than that, they want to be able to lean over and tell Jesus what they're planning. And they want to be the first in line at all times with their ideas. They want to make sure that these last few years with Jesus weren't for nothing. And so in many ways, their request is kind of like going to the genie and your first wish is to wish for more wishes because they want absolute certainty that they're never going to be out of a place of power and control and that whatever Jesus has, whatever Jesus is doing, that they get to kind of keep their inner ring with Jesus and they're not going to be displaced from that. And so they're not just jockeying for position. They're trying to secure a position with Jesus. Now, I don't want to be too hard on these guys. Because in one sense, the gospel writer Matthew, I'm not sure if he's easier on them or harder on them, but he mentions in the passage where it's actually their mom who came and made the request for them. Right? And yet Jesus turns and talks to these guys like, no, 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 I'm responsible for you guys. And, you know, in a city like Irvine, you never see that kind of thing happen, right? <laughs> Overprotective parents who are jockeying for their kid's position and success, right? So, so what's at the heart of this request is, is this idea that they live in a day and age where everything is actually built on this kind of power dynamic. So don't be too hard on them, because in one sense, they're actually just living in the system that, they live, that they've been programmed to live in. They are, you could say, just following the incentive structure of the day. You see, when Caesar Augustus unified Rome, he did so on the basis of the system and ethics of patronage. Right? And this was fascinating to understand and read about. That is, everything was built on Caesar is indebted to the gods, and then those under Caesar are indebted to Caesar. And, you know, these lords and the people, you know, who are, are the patrons, they have their own, you know, clientele who has their own clientele who has their own clientele. And basically the idea was you were in a position of authority because the person over you decided to give it to you. And so the, the concept, this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, those who lord it over them, right? And the system of power that Jesus is referencing. You see this also in one of the miracles that Jesus does where, you know, a captain of the guard basically comes to Jesus and is like, look, I'm under authority and I have men who are under authority over me. And so I understand how this works. You just give the order and I know the miracle will happen. That was the dynamic of the day is that everything was built upon this system of there was someone over you that you were indebted to, that was in authority over you, and the goal was to have as many people under you that you could be in authority over. And so you get the idea, you want to maximize the number of people under you and minimize the people over you. And that's what James and John are after. 
is they want to make certain that they're secure. And they want the security of being absolutely certain. Now, why is that so bad? Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't have a dynamic at play in our lives right now, in our home, at work, in various relationships, right? Where you think, okay, this is kind of the power dynamic and the structure of the day. And what I need to do is maneuver myself in a way so that I can have kind of the most power and control so that it can't be exerted against me, but, and we'll do this as Christians, but it's also so that, well, then I can do more for Jesus, right? I mean, James and John would have said that, wouldn't they? They would have been like, look, no, no, the reason we want to be in the seats of power is so that other boneheads who, you know, maybe would like abuse it, like, like we'll make sure to be in those powers so that we don't abuse it. Okay, so I'll make a confession right now. In many ways, I have signed up to coach some of my kids' sports teams for the simple purpose that I could set when the practice times were, right? That I could be the one in authority, others couldn't lord it over me, and instead I could control the schedule. And I know some of you, that's why you're on your HOA board, right? <laughs> I know some of you, that's why you're on the PTA, is you're like, look, I'll do it so that I, the, I can minimize my losses and maximize my gains, and I'll sacrifice a little bit of inconvenience for that. So is that just what James and John are doing, right? You could say, you know, if the question here, is again, that we're driving after is, why live the way Jesus is saying? Why shouldn't we maximize our power and control in all situations, in all settings, so that we can leverage it for Jesus? Why not? You know, is Jesus here basically doing what parents do when their kids ask them a question? Like, why do I have to do the dishes? Right? And parents, you know, I know, you're tired. And your, your first response is not to lovingly help your children understand how responsibility is going to be good for them for the rest of their lives and that their future spouse is going to thank you later for raising responsible, thoughtful children? No. Your first response is, why did I have to cook the dinner? And then why do I have to go to work and buy the dishes and the groceries that you wanted to eat? So why do you got to do the dishes? I don't know. We all got to do stuff we don't want to do. All right? Is that... Is that what Jesus is saying? Jesus is like, look, why do I got to die? You know? So the least you guys can do is suck it up and be nice to other people. Try to be the kind of church leaders who don't have a podcast made about your life later. All right? Try to be the kind of leaders who don't have investigative reports leaked out in the press that shows how you're really a bunch of morons who have abused your power. Can you just do that? Just the bare minimum. Can you cover that for me, guys? Is that what Jesus is after? He's like, because after all, I had to die. It's the least you can do. All right, I don't think that's it, okay? So, but I do think we can look at, why is this so bad, though? Why wouldn't we want to live this way? And in looking at this passage, someone who's really helped me see this is actually an old theologian by the name of John Stott. And he has a couple books on Christian leadership and the cross of Christ and some amazing works. And he pulls out basically three things from this passage where he says, look, the reason Christians don't want to engage in this kind of leadership, which really isn't leadership, but it's lordship, the reason we don't engage in that is because it's bad for us, it's bad for the people we're leading, and it's bad for the cause of Christ altogether. 
So if I could get through them kind of quickly, right? They want honor and power and control. And the reason that that's bad is because, as John Stott would say, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so when you're asking for power, you've got to realize you're asking for a dangerous thing. But one of the things that's almost so dangerous about it is that the more that you are trying to gain control, the more insecurity you actually bring into your life, right? I mean, we briefly touched on this last week when we looked at the rich young ruler. The more you're after money, the more time you spend thinking about money and obsessing over money and worrying about your money. The more you're after power and control, angling for the political dynamics, trying to manage and curate your own reputation, what other people think about you, the more you pursue those things, the more you're actually insecure about those things. The more that you have to have something, the fact of the matter is, is the more that that thing actually has a power over you. And when power and control are the thing that you have to have, they're actually the things that have you. And Jesus gets at this when he uses this word at the end that he became a ransom for many. That word ransom has a few things that are defined by it, but one of the main definitions that people would have understood that word at that time was a ransom is what you paid to get back a prisoner of war, right? We think about ransom as like, that's what you pay kidnappers. But no, the idea here is you're trying to purchase someone back, right? This is what you would pay for a prisoner of war or for a slave, but it's also what you would pay for someone who was on death row. You want to ransom their life to rescue them from that fate. And Jesus is saying, look, you are held captive by your need to control everything. You are held captive by your desire to perfectly curate and craft things. And in your mind, you think you're going to leverage this power for Jesus, but it's actually not the way of Jesus at all. And that's what's even more despicable about it is because you don't even know that you're in bondage to it. You don't even recognize how it has so much control over you, and you've imported a false paradigm into the way of Christianity, into the way of Jesus. And it's twisting and distorting everything in a way that you actually can't even see. And that's why you need to be ransomed. You need to be rescued, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the very power of it in your life. So it's bad for you because the desire to control only leads to being someone who needs to be more in control. Right? But then we would say it's bad for them. Why is it bad for the people you're in leadership over? Well, if you treat them as Lord, right, and they're just your subjects, you're actually never helping them grow into maturity because growing into maturity always requires gaining responsibility, growing in wisdom, right? And you can't do that if you're always under the thumb of somebody, right? No one ever got good at their job by being micromanaged. That's just the fact of the matter of the way life is. No one ever grows because they think, oh, I am so glad that at every step of the way you have critiqued me. Thank you. This was so helpful. No, you see, because what that does is we begin to view others, not just in the image of God, but as 
kind of like inferior in the image of God. And we're superior. And you see, we're playing right back into that paradigm of being over as many people as you can be and under as few people as you can be. We can do that with the people at work. We can do that in the organizations that we're a part of, and we can do that with our own children, where the idea is to control them, to manage them, to schedule them out, to make sure everything's perfectly curated for them, never giving them the opportunity to grow into maturity. Right? Now, an objection might be, well... I mean, don't we have to be good parents, though? Like, don't I have to make sure my kid, like, doesn't fail? Don't I have to make sure, like, we're being responsible and safe? How do, don't we have to make sure we do all that? And that's what takes us to this next one, which is this is why it's bad for the mission. Because if, yes, of course, we have to be responsible. Yes, of course, you have to use wisdom in, the, in these matters, right? But it's bad for the mission because even though the intent to control everything is to get things done, Right? to help other people get things done, you know, is to make sure what we want to see happen in the world actually happens in the world. What actually we're doing is we're, we can reverse the very mission of Jesus himself. You see, because Jesus came to bring security by bearing condemnation. And when we just engage in being controlling of every little thing, what we're actually bringing is condemnation that just stirs up insecurity in those around us. That's all it does. As we become extra nitpicky, extra critical, jockeying for position, always trying to be the ones in control, the people around us in our lives don't feel secure, like, oh, I'm so glad that you have that handle, that you've thought through all these little details that you criticize me over. Thank you. No, the people around us can feel condemned and they feel insecure. But it was in Jesus' entire mission to come give his life as a ransom for many, to serve, to bear condemnation, to be the payment, to be the sacrifice, so that we could have security. So it completely reverses that. And this is why we need to constantly be assessing how are we living this out. Are we, just like the disciples, so close to Jesus, but importing a false paradigm that it has distorted and twisted everything about the way in which we follow Jesus? Because, look, no one ever gets less controlling, right? Have you ever gotten to a point in your life where you felt like, great, got it all handled? I can just let go now. I can chill and be relaxed. Finally, the rest of you have gotten with my program. We're good now. I mean, I would love to get to that point. Don't get me wrong. I'm still in the control freak phase, okay? But that's because there's that false promise of like, well, once I get it all controlled, it'll be good, and I can chill. But no one ever gets there. So if this is why we shouldn't follow the way of James and John, nicknamed Sons of Thunder, right? Why would we live the way Jesus is calling us to live? Why live this way? And thankfully, as we'll look at why, the how is baked in. Because if you can understand why Jesus would call to live this life, why Jesus would call us to follow in the footsteps of the Son of Man, it actually unlocks the power to be able to live that way. 
Now, I joked earlier, why, does Jesus just give them the speech of like, why do I have to do the dishes? And it's like, well, why do I have to work to buy the groceries and cook the meal for you to eat and then not do dishes, right? That's actually kind of is a little bit close because why live this way? The answer is because Jesus lived this way. But it's not a condemning because Jesus lived this way. It's not a look at everything I've done for you. How could you not give me a little bit, right? That's not the part of it. Because notice he starts with the description of the son of man. Now, this is not just that Jesus was a human being who was born of a woman. He's actually quoting from a very popular scripture, right, that everyone at the time would have known from Daniel chapter 7, the son of man, which would have been the most exalting, honorific title conceivable in the day, to be the son of man, was to be the one who descends from heaven on clouds, clothed in glory, conquering all. He's the son of man. And he says, but I don't use my authority to crush people. This is like a dead simple point in many ways, but I so easily just kind of rushed through this text and forget that in all of this, never once has Jesus asked anything of James and John. And never once does Jesus say, it's my mission to get you to do this for me. But instead, as Jesus at the heart of the book of, of the gospel of Mark, he says, no, my mission is to do for you. My mission is to give for you, to serve for you. Jesus did not come to get you to do things for him. You're like, oh, hold on, though. Aren't we supposed to serve Jesus? And does that mean we can just live any way we want? And, you know, uh, like, no, 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 no. Jesus did not come to get you to do anything for him. He came to do for you. That doesn't mean we don't serve him with joy. That doesn't mean we don't change our lives. Actually, we're going to see how, how he radically changes our lives. But the radical way in which he changes our lives is he gives and he serves and he becomes a ransom. This isn't just some great leadership principle, right? Where it's like, have a to-do list and a not-to-do list. You know, that's the way to be productive. No, Jesus is saying, I have thousands and thousands of angels who could serve me. Our God is in the heavens and he can do whatever he pleases, but I came to serve. And I think that if we kind of stepped into our internal monologue, that many of us, myself included, constantly hear a Jesus who's saying, you're not doing enough. You're not praying enough. You don't share enough. You don't serve enough. You don't love enough. You aren't enough. Right? And if you're a theology nerd, you don't know enough, right? And you aren't enough. You don't have enough. You're not doing enough. You are not enough. And what we actually have is a Jesus who is just as controlling as we are. A Jesus who's constantly critiquing every step of the way, constantly saying, no, I need you to do this, not that. I need, feel guilty about this, not about that. A Jesus who's just as critical and who is just as controlling, and that's a false Jesus. Because Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. 
And yet, each one of us can so easily have a distorted view of Jesus that doesn't get us to actually change. The same way that if the people in your life who you try to control actually don't change is the same way that you will never change if you just think Jesus is just a controlling God over you. Because that's counter to who Jesus says he is. Jesus doesn't want to stifle love and change in your life because notice what he tells them. It can sound like a threat. I understand that, but notice what he tells them. You will drink from this cup and you will be baptized with this baptism. You will share in these things. That's not a like, well, you asked for it. You know, sure, you wanted, us, you, you wanted glory. You're going to get suffering now. No, Jesus is saying, actually, men, I am, I am going to change you into the kind of men who live like the Son of Man. That James would be the first apostle who would be martyred and that John would be exiled, and he would become to known as the apostle, not of power and glory, but the apostle of love. When you read his books, they're all about love. That Jesus is coming to change us, but the thing that changes us is not him critiquing and criticizing and demanding that we get with his program, but he starts by giving himself for us. And you see, that's the only real life-changing power that can help people. Not the kind of critical, condemning power that might get them to change how they act, but doesn't get them to thrive and flourish. The only real life-changing power that can bring those who are, we love into maturity and help them flourish is not going to be by controlling them, but it's actually by sacrificing for them. Parents, you know this principle to be true. If you're going to raise kids who actually grow into maturity and, you know, are nice for the world and are stable emotionally, you have to sacrifice everything. Everything. And if you don't, instead, if you take the tact of being controlling and critical of them, you might get them to perform well, but in the end, they're going to have, right, Years and years of therapy. Or you could say, well, I just won't engage at all. I'm not going to make any sacrifice for them, which in many ways would be just as detrimental because now there's just this big open neediness that they will carry with them the rest of their lives. And so the only real way to change anyone is self-sacrificing love so it would only make sense that God, that's how he changes us. That's how he deals with us. That's how he interacts with us. That he is a ransom for. A very small word that has a lot of power because Jesus is saying, I'm doing this in the place of you. I am living this life. I am walking this road for you. And I'm going to die for you, but I'm also going to rise for you so that you can share in all of these things with me. He talks about the cup, which of course we know is the cup of God's wrath. If you read in the book of Revelation 14, it's, it's where we get that, that famous hymn, you know, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. It's 
That vintage, that wine that is poured into the cup, the cup of wrath that comes from Revelation 14, where that wrath is now drunk full and to the bottom by Jesus. And the baptism he's experiencing is not the cute baptism we have for the babies up here. No, this baptism is this overwhelming ordeal where like the floodwaters will crush him. You know, the irony of the request of James and John is that they want to be on his right and on his left when he comes in glory. But when Jesus comes in glory, when he accomplishes his mission in Jerusalem, who's on his right and his left? The criminals who are crucified along with him. That's what they didn't even realize what they were asking for because that's what Jesus was going to do for them. But I love that Jesus doesn't yell at James and John. Jesus doesn't condemn them. And I want you to know this morning that if you're sitting here and, you know, you have that meme of like, you know, worrying works because most of the things I worry about never happen, right? Or if you're realizing maybe the ways in which you're controlling and the people around you aren't flourishing, but they're just feeling condemned and pressured and pushed and prodded and they're not growing into maturity and you're not leading in self-sacrificial love, Jesus doesn't condemn you. Jesus doesn't want and doesn't need anything from you. But he wants so much more for you. And so whether you're riddled with anxiety, Jesus doesn't look at your faith and condemn you. Whether you are riddled with all the impulses to control everything around you, Jesus doesn't look at your faith and condemn you. He wants more for you. And that's why he was the ransom for you. And so what we're called to do is to turn and fix our eyes upon Jesus. To look at the one who doesn't condemn us, but the one who was condemned for us. So that we could have so much more than the things that we're after that we seek to manage and control. That's why we're invited, the same way these men were invited and changed to live the way the Son of Man lives. is because that's the way to eternal life. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that as you see our position, as you hear our own internal monologues, as you see the ways in which we strive for control, that you would help us, Father, to know that you are not a God of control. You are certainly in control and working all things, but you are not one who leans over us to condemn and to criticize. God, but you are one who is the ransom for us who gives and serves. And so, Father, help us to have a picture of the real Jesus in our minds, the Son of Man who did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, that it might change us into people who would live like that, but that it would change us into people who can be set free God, from the power of sin to control everything in our lives. So, Father, we ask the Holy Spirit will work these things because of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf as our ransom. Amen.